Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cover. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of sex robots? But first, we have an important announcement uh, about our graphic novel. You may have heard us talking about this for several episodes now. This is a comic book that we made by the name of Let Go. Yes, we kickstarted it and a lot of you helped us make the thing. And now we finally have got a publisher and we are out um, and available. You can buy it and they will send it to your house. And for people that may not be familiar with the concept, it's a science fiction story about a family struggling with exponential change in the near future. It deals with a lot of the same subjects that we discuss on this podcast. So if you like our podcast, we think you'll find it interesting. And you can go to letgocomic.com and that'll link you to places that you can buy it today. Right. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on Barnes & Noble. You can get it on walmart.com and in fine comic book stores throughout the United States as well. But now the topic at hand. Yes. Sex robots. Sex robots. And I've been wanting to do uh, an episode about this topic or about at least some kind of future sex topic for a while. Um, What made this one, I think, more doable is that we took a lot of inspiration from a book uh, called Robot Sex, Social and Ethical Implications. This is actually a collection of essays by various people, but it was edited by John Danaher and Neil MacArthur. And you might recognize the name John Danaher because he's been a guest twice on our show. Yes. Has a lot of interesting things to say about philosophy and law and future technologies. Yeah, he's got the interesting idea about algocracy we talked about. and That was one of the episodes. uh, He's just like a really smart, uh, interesting thinker. He has his own podcast too, which you should check out. Um, It's pretty dense, but it's pretty interesting. I like it. Um, I think it's called the Algocracy and Transhumanist podcast or something like yeah, that we'll put a link on the site but uh today yeah we're, we're taking some inspiration from this book uh about robot sex and the essays in it it's not really going to be a review though we're not going to stick too closely to what's in the book necessarily just the book was kind of a good launching point for us to get into this topic yeah it was a framework so we could kind of organize what we wanted to talk about and uh i wanted to start by just quoting a poll that's mentioned in the book early on which is the question of would you have sex with a robot and what the general responses were. Right. And this is good because this is kind of like a why talk about this sort of question, right? So what are, what are the numbers, John? What, what well, actually, say? it's pretty low, right? So only apparently only 9%, just shy of 10, said yes. <laughs> 11% okay. were unsure and 80% were pretty much no. 11% were robo-curious. <laughs> yes, 11% were robo-curious. Right, but 80% said they would not have sex with a robot. So that's surprising, right? I mean, uh, I feel like I would have expected a higher number would say yes. One of the things that we're going to be talking about is, you know, how likely is this to become something that's widely adopted, right? We really don't know. I mean, these numbers don't look good, but I think culture changes pretty quickly, right? And it's kind of weird to ask somebody about whether they'd use a technology before that technology exists, right? Because you can't really people aren't really picturing something that's probably at all like what they're going to actually get. Well, also, I mean, there are some rudimentary robot technologies that you can have sex with now, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, but they are not uh, that enticing to most people. If if people are imagining the real thing, I guess I'm not surprised that only 10% want to have sex with that robot. Well, and that's a good transition into the question that's important here, which is what is a sex bot? Yes. Right. They discuss this at length in the book, and it's kind of an 
a fun read. Yeah, so so Danner puts forward a, you know, set of things that would describe what they're counting as a sex bot for the purposes of their book. So some of the items are it's got to have a humanoid form, right? Uh, it's got to have some kind of human-like movement or behavior and some degree of AI. Now, the amount of AI is obviously a big question here, right? What counts as some degree of AI? And obviously a big dividing line would be, is this, you know, the very strong kind of AI that you'd see in a science fiction film where this is actually a conscious person we're talking about? Or is this more like, you know, pretty good AI, but there's no conscious being inside there? Right. Is it a souped up version of Siri or is it like, you know, uh, a real person that is, you know, artificial, but has has person like rights? Now, we're going to kind of talk about both today. Right. Because I think they're both interesting. Right. There's what happens when you have really good, convincing sex robots that aren't, you know, they look a lot like humans. They act a lot like humans, but they're definitely not conscious or we can assume that they're not. Uh, And then there's the ones that you start to maybe have to treat like persons. And obviously the questions you ask in those situations are vastly different. Right. Exactly. So we just want to point out that distinction, but we will be talking about both types. And it does seem like the first one is more likely to be achieved before the second one. So you'll probably have to answer both of these sets of questions eventually. Right. Um, At least that's the way I, I, you know, I'm predicting. So I I think it's worth discussing both, both types. So what's possible now, right? You've got... uh you know, very, very limited sex robot type things on the market right now. I mean, it you can barely even call them sex robots, I think. Obviously, a lot of people might have heard of this company, Real Doll, that makes these sex dolls. Right. Sex dolls. They've been around for a while making sort of realistic-ish sex dolls. And those don't quite qualify because they don't have AI, but they're starting to merge those things. There is a, uh, a company that's making an AI for these kinds of sex robots called Realbotics, I think is the company, and their AI is called Harmony. And uh, there are some robots coming on the market now that are basically a combination of, say, like a modular robotic head that's running a primitive AI with a conversational interface, kind of a Siri type thing, right? And it can move and animate, and it looks vaguely human-like. Of course, a little bit creepy, as you might expect. And then that modular robotic head can be placed on one of these pseudo-realistic doll bodies that you can have sex with, like that real doll makes. Right. So those things are starting to be put together. That's pretty much the cutting edge, as far as I can tell right now. And the bodies are mostly inactive. I, you know, I think they're working on making you know, the genitalia function to some degree, but like it's all pretty basic. It's like Siri plus a doll with some animation. Right, right, yeah. And there's, so, yeah, so they're really um, not convincing humanoid uh, creatures at all. They're basically some kind of very elaborate um, sex toy with a little bit of like a chatbot maybe installed in it. But there is already a niche market for this stuff. Yes. Right? Yes. So, I mean, I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today is when this stuff, you know, is potentially broadly accepted and appealing to a lot of people when when it's not just 9% say yes on a poll. Right. Uh, but at, at the moment, you know, there are people that are specifically into these things because they're robots, right? The attraction actually is the fact that it's a little bit uncanny. It's robotic. That's actually the fetish or excitement right. for a lot of people. Right. Um, and so on that level, these are already a success and on the market now. It's just a pretty fringe phenomenon. Right, right, right. And yeah, and you could imagine that it will, there's some level of uh, realism uh, and features that it could cross where a broader swath of people would start to be interested. Also, as you might imagine, these things are mostly, if not all female, from what I can tell. 
Yeah. Um, and they're all, you know, the sort of classic porn stereotype uh, figure, you know. Right. So uh, there's not a lot of variety, even though there theoretically could be very vast variety in this space. Right. And I kind of ins- expect that in the early stages. But if that continues on, that could potentially be an issue. Um, uh, when we get to the society part of the discussion, we can bring that back up. But like, yeah, that that it seems like it could be an issue. And it, it does sort of speak to what segment of society is driving the development of this stuff at the moment. Now, the the book that we're partially basing this on, you know, kind of divides the issues that are at stake into three categories. Mm -hmm. So you've got benefits or harms, right? Is this good or bad uh, to the users of the sex robots? Right. You've got benefits or harms to larger society. Right. And then you've got the most speculative one, which we'll get to later in the podcast, which is benefits or harms to the robots themselves. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we're going to talk about again, all, all three now, uh, but again, there's one more like maybe definitional thing that I want to go over because there was a chapter early on in the book that I felt was important and it was, it helped me sort out some things that I had already tried to sort of been struggling with, with this issue. Because when you think of a sex robot, right? If it's not conscious, how is that really different than just like a glorified dildo or fleshlight or something right like right like where what exact i guess it, the question is you know what is it to have sex and how is it you know where's the line between that and just say masturbation right right because the the point being that most people don't consider using a uh, masturbatory toy of some kind to be having sex um right and right? so if you're just doing it by yourself solo with no interaction with another person generally that's not considered sex so the book brings that up and and points out that you have to have a a definition of sex that's broad enough but not too broad right Um, and and they kind of actually they they say that there are two definitions you could work with one which is very broad and one which is more narrow which is probably more useful for us um and this is an essay that uh is is written by mark mcgotty and nicole wyatt and the broad sense is is the sense in which you can you know People do say you can have sex with an inanimate object. Someone might say colloquially, uh, you know, he had sex with a watermelon or something. Or, sure. You know what I mean? But that's not, that's the very broadest version of that. Like, and so we're sort of not going to count that definition as the useful one. Right. Um, the more narrow one that they come up with is sort of this concept of shared sexual agency, which requires an actual we. It sort of requires two parties coming together and making some sort of, uh, affirmative choice and sharing an agency together, right? Uh, which is pretty general, but I think it's good enough to spell out something important here, right? Um, which is that if you go with that definition of sex, then you you kind of have two possible options, and it, it totally depends on whether or not the sex robot is actually a conscious person. Because if the sex robot's non-conscious, right, then it, you can't really have sex with it by that definition because right. it's not an agent; it can't be a we with you, right? Uh, and then what we're talking about is just an extremely convincing illusion of sex. Right. Which still, I think, has things to talk about there, right? I mean, this would be the best, like some of the technologies we might have in the near future would give us the best possible illusion that's ever existed on a scale that's completely, you know, might be different in kind from, say, what's possible with pornography today. Uh, Right, right. It feels like a sort of hyper-driven pornography, but it might actually, yeah, produce different results in the brain or different results in people or whatever because it is, or different results in society because it is so, you know, so much better. Right. Right. Whereas if they are conscious, then it is real sex. 
But now, presumably, the robot also has a will to choose or maybe even has rights, depending on the society it exists in. Right. And those issues potentially make them unable to even reliably fulfill the needs that they're supposedly designed to create. Now, this gets complicated here, but I mean... I just, again, it's important to draw that distinction there that there's like two different scenarios we're talking about, right? What happens when you have a really convincing illusion of sex versus what happens when you actually have this like being that is conscious but is created just for sex? Right, right. When you engineer a conscious being to sort of desire sex or to desire providing sexual fulfillment as like a core part of what it is. Yeah. Now, let's let's talk about debates around this, pros and cons, right? There is a campaign out there to stop sex robots. Uh, there's a website for this. Uh, I think some people think this is going to be a bad thing. You hear some knee-jerk responses. Um, some people no doubt think it's going to be a good thing. Um, on balance, the impression that I get is that it's going to be a good thing, and that seems to be what is largely argued in, in this particular book. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe we should start by going through what some of the possible benefits would be. Sure. Okay. Uh, so obviously increased happiness, right, um, is a good one, right? I mean, this is just something that people want. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to argue that it's bad if it's not harming anybody, right? If somebody of their own free will buys a product, has sex with it in their home, like what's, what's the harm, right? If it makes them happier. Right. Just if you look at it from the perspective of the individual, it's hard to argue it's not a good now, that's like a simple view, but, you know, it, it, if it is something that people want, it will, in, on some level, uh, increase their satisfaction and happiness. Um, there could be, you know, positive health outcomes from this. And again, it's not maybe this. There are positive health outcomes associated with real sex. It's not clear right. if robots can provide all of those outcomes. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, they might provide some of them like exercise. Right, it gets your heart rate up. That's right. What, yeah. you, you might get more exercise having sex with a robot than masturbating alone in your bedroom. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it seems like, a, you know, and also maybe it would, uh, you know, trigger some of the positive feelings or hor- hormones or depending on how convincing the illusion is. I think this is something that's not clear, right? But it might actually be sort of understood by your brain and your emotions differently if it's if it's that convincing. Right. Um and, and a lot of these arguments, by the way, about the benefits are coming from Neil MacArthur, who's one of the co-editors of the book. Then there's various distributive arguments, right? I mean, there are some people that just, for whatever reason, don't have the opportunity to have sex. They could be mentally or physically disabled. Right. Right. They could be in a situation that has like misaligned demographics. Right. Like on a military base or a oil rig or something. Yeah. You're in a country that's predominantly uh, male or... You're gay in a town that has no gay people. Right, right. You live in a small town. Right. Yeah. Or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and in those cases, I mean, this is better. This might not be as good as the real thing. Almost certainly won't be at the beginning. But it might be better than deprivation for those people. Right. And it may also not be an all or nothing um, uh, proposition. If it's not terribly stigmatized, then people might have this for the times that there isn't a person in their life or whatever sure yeah you don't actually this doesn't have to be your only option but 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 on in the more extreme cases this could be some people's only option and it's better than than no option at all right right just as pornography now is better than nothing for most people but there are also uh relationship arguments that macarthur brings up and those would sort of connect to what you're saying right which is that this is not an all or nothing thing like you could be in a 
perfectly normal relationship or like having sex by other means and the sex robots could actually enhance your current relationships. Now, this is, I think, where it gets contentious a little bit, right? Because, again, other polls they've done are on, you know, the question of is it considered, you know, cheating? Right. For example, right? If And a lot of people seem to, like, almost like half of people seem to think that, you know, having sex with a robot would be considered cheating on your existing relationship. Yeah. So, I mean, you could argue that this would drive a wedge, between two people or create problems. Right. But I think you could just as easily make the opposite argument um, that it's going to, you know, in- increase people's, you know, preparation, you know, for sex. It can, you can learn things, right? It can be educational, for, especially for people that don't have a lot of comfort around going into a sexual experience. They can build uh, comfort and, right. and experience over time. Yeah, with- it's actually a very safe way to build experience. It's just something that people generally want to do. Exactly. It's, it's like a safe testing environment for lack of a better way to say it right uh it could allow people to overcome trauma maybe that can't like engage in sex for that reason right you might be able to use this in in some sort of therapy context even um it could resolve desire discrepancy which is like the fancy term for one person in the relationship wants to have sex more than the other person does sure i have heard of this yes yes so that's like right You, you could the one who's feeling pestered can be like just go get a sex spot jimmy and everybody's happy. Right, right. It could really diffuse that situation. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, and also, you know, it could be a way, like it, the sex robot could teach members of a couple, you know, new new tricks, right? I mean, sure. basically, like it could be essentially like a sex coach or a sex therapist, right? Right. I mean, they have these people do this, but it's a pretty niche thing because people are super, you know, prudish. Uh, or whatever, like, you know, repressed about their sexuality. And uh, being able to do this in the privacy of your home with a robot that only shares your information with a trusted company, I'm being a little facetious here, Uh, (laughs) it seems like something people might choose. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, and another benefit, too, is that it allows the expression of, you know, this new sexual identity, possibly. Robosexual. Robus, yeah, is I don't know if that's the term. I, think I mean, I've, I just made that up, but it seems right. I think I've seen that before because I mean that's I be a fairly obvious one. I don't know if that's the preferred term. <laughs> this is one of oh, these things we'll discuss. Am I offending someone? You could be. You could be. I don't know. I mean, I adapted it from an acceptable term. I thought it would also. It sounds good to me. It would. It would. It would inherit the acceptability of homosexual or heterosexual. We'll go. We'll go with that for now. But yeah, I mean, if the, if this is a we're tolerant know, here at the review the future podcast sure and i think it's generally good for people to be able to express their various sexual identities whatever those may be even if they're you know somewhat unusual in this way Mm -hmm. um and so this enables that so i'd say that's also arguably a benefit um now again not everybody feels like this is such a rosy picture on balance well right i mean i can i accept all those positive things but i can see some some negative sides to many of those scenarios as well Sure. I, and I think that's like one of the things that we're going to find out as we talk about this more is that a lot of these things like, is this going to be good or bad? I mean, it's very hard to say, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> what's, I mean, until you actually, you know, unleash these things upon society and see what happens, um, we're all just kind of speculating. Well, and big, powerful things that are general purpose, like, like robotics are going to be both good and bad in such profound ways, right? I mean, I don't know. I feel like uh, 
you know, our current society is like super angsty about social media because the last couple of years that mm-hmm. seemed to be a net negative. And I agree it's been a net negative the last couple of years. But for about 10 years before that, it was a net positive, which is why we have so much of it. It's So it's it's all... It's all very uh, contingent and and can change in yeah, and, quick and I, minute. And I don't even know if I would agree with it being a net negative, which is not to disagree with you, but just to say that it's kind of hard to parse out what what's the real truth of something like that. A yeah. statement like that, it's kind of hard to even figure out what that means, right? Net yeah, positive, yeah, yeah. Net negative. I mean, it's hard to it's hard to know. I mean, I think my, uh, my gut instinct is that it might be at the moment they might be right about that because of maybe some big visible things, but maybe I'm overweighting those. I mean, I don't, I certainly haven't done anything rigorous to figure it out. Right, right. Um, it's complicated is sort of the point. I'm so making. yeah, I think I absolutely agree. It's complicated. Yeah. Now, some of the arguments uh, that people make against these things have follow like a, like a, uh, a, a format that, that Danaher in his very sort of analytical way <laughs> breaks down, I think, which is something along the lines of that, you know, sex robots, are going to sort of be symbolic of like ethically problematic social norms, right? So, because some of the things you can do with this, I mean, first of all, what they tend to look like, they tend to look like these sort of like over the top, you know, porn star right. type creations that are, you know, almost always gendered female. And like you imagine a lot of the use cases might be sort of to uh, boss them around or use them in a way that sort of, you know, simulates non-consent possibly. Right. Things right. that are, th- there's various things that you might imagine that uh, uh, ways they might get used that are symbolically bad. Right. right. And, and, and if you look at the current market, there are some, they go over this a little bit in the book. There are some disturbing facts about like the personality names they use for these things and stuff like that, that are, that do point to a kind of objectification or whatever. Well, it was one was like frigid something. There's frigid Farah. Frigid Farah. Like, you know, I mean, that says it all. characters you load up that I guess, you know, pretends not to like it. It's pretty uh, unsavory in my opinion. But, sure. you know, um, it also is not clear. I mean, these things could be programmed anyway. So I think it's one thing to dislike a particular way they're programmed. It's another thing to dislike them on the basis that they could be programmed badly. I, I feel like that seems... Well, and I think that's a really important point that that Danner makes too, which is that, uh, you know, they could represent ethically problematic social norms. They could also represent progressive social norms. Yeah. You could have like a wide range. You could have like a consent bot that like, you know, only goes forward with, you know, after it gives consent or something. I mean, you could simulate things that you want to promote, right? Just as easily as you can simulate these more problematic things. It just kind of depends on the design. Right, right. right. Exactly. But but the concern is that they're going to be ethically problematic because that sort of seems where things trend. There appears to be some market force pushing in that direction. Yeah. Um, and then that as a result of that, um, that's going to have negative consequences on larger society, possibly because we're training people with these bad social norms, right? And that therefore we need to do something about this, right? You know, the campaign against them wants to... I think preemptively ban them or something along those lines. I think it's kind of vague what they want to do, but Mm -hmm. um, so those are some of the arguments and, and uh, you know, I I'll step in and say my opinion here that I, you know, I I generally don't find this line of thinking very convincing. Um, No, nor does it seem like it would work even if they tried. I mean, well, banning, I I, I, think the development of a technology like this that has, clearly fascinated human beings for a long time you know 
uh, creating artificial beings. Um, it's just gonna happen. Someone's gonna do it. I feel like uh, trying to make bands just, you know, it, it makes certain changes about like where things will appear first and stuff like that. Now there's alternatives to straight up banning. There's regulating. Right. So, for example, you could regulate them in such a way that you, you know, required the robot to give consent, for example, if society felt like that was an important social norm to establish. Right. Um, You could also, you know, have regulation that says like, oh, you can't have an underage looking sex robot. Right. Although that's something that's interesting that we should talk about. Right. Because, I mean, I don't know what the answer to this is, but it's a conundrum in my head. But I am. I am. Uh, wondering is it better to have pedophiles allowed to have a robot that looks like a child perhaps in addition to some kind of surveillance technology that you use to keep them away from regular children or something but like is there is it would it be okay if, uh, would it be better for the world to allow them to uh, get that urge out on something that is not a child and cannot be harmed in the way a child can be but that just appears to be one versus um, banning that so as to make sure we never convince someone who's like not an active pedophile that like, oh, this would be fun. I enjoyed that when I did it to a robot child. Now I'll go try it on a real child. Right. I mean, I don't know enough about how pedophilia works in the brain or or whatever to make a judgment on that. But I'm uh, I'm sympathetic to the idea that it might actually be better for deterrence sake to actually save more children, which would be the goal uh, in my mind, um, to give pedophile children robots on purpose. Right. So this is a big debate in this space, right? Right? Which is like, is this, generally speaking, when it comes to, you know, problematic behavior that you're simulating with the sex robots, like pedophilia, are the sex robots going to be cathartic, meaning they're going to do what you were suggesting, which is sort of like get those urges out in a safe place where no one's harmed? Right. Uh, or is it going to be emboldening, right? Is it just going to like, you know, I mean, it's a it's a smaller leap from having sex with a convincing robot to having sex with a real person than it is from, say, maybe just looking at pornography, right? So, so in a, yeah, in, a, in a way, it could be training you or emboldening you, or or it could pull in people that wouldn't otherwise, you know, engage in some of this behavior by making it so easily accessible. It's just an app you download or something, right? If it's safe to try, does that make it worse? Do you have to like be already convicted of it before you're eligible to buy one? Like, how do you, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't have an answer, but I just feel like there's some serious work and study that has to go in here to try to figure out how would we actually deploy or not deploy this technology in order to save the most kids from being victims of pedophiles. Now, of course, we're talking about this in an abstract philosophical space. Yeah. My, my prediction would be that just on a gut level society just won't allow this right. just people are just not gonna be able to handle this and and that while i don't think we'll be broadly speaking banning these things i think we will probably like banning all sex robots i mean i think we will be probably banning these forms of them that are especially scary to society like uh ch- ones that look like children or ones exactly that are programmed to um basically be rape victims or something things like that i right. I, I think yeah. that there's going to be a lot of pressure whether you know the empirical evidence leans one way or another there i think just on a gut level society is going to reject this that would be my pred- prediction anyways yeah i think that's a reasonable prediction i'm just not totally sure that that's the way we actually get the best society long term i mean i don't have an answer i'm just curious or... but see that's the thing is we don't know you know again 
whether to expect this catharsis response or the emboldening response. And it is an empirical question you could try to answer, but we haven't been able to answer it very well for other similar areas. Right. This feels like a kind of like violence in video games debate, right? It's like violence in video games or even closer, uh, maybe porno- the effects of pornography, which is something that right. they bring up in this book, which is, you know, uh, there's, from what I could tell, there's a lot of different studies suggesting a lot of different things, positive and negative, about the effects of pornography. Right. Some of them related to the specific issue of like, you know, does, you know, pornography, you know, sate people's desires to do bad things in the world, you know, in some cases, or does it, you know, well, stir one, them up? One thing in the book that they mentioned was specifically that like uh, rape goes down as pornography access goes up. So that's controversial. It Yes, a later essay in the book... Yeah. Uh, cites that case, the fact that there is, appears to be um you know <laughs> some what, substitution effect basically between between porn and and uh well rape. i don't know if we can even say uh, that's what she was claiming in in that article um what what is it is a correlation right it's like over the time people have grown in the internet access right. and and in access to porn that's gone with that pretty right. much since day one right um there has been a decline in in you know violent rapes and so on. Yeah, and uh, uh, one there was a couple of different ways they'd sliced up the data, and one way was saying that like uh, the largest decline was among fifteen to nineteen year olds. Uh, those were the perpetrators' ages, which would have been the people who were legally barred from seeing pornography before the internet, right? Because you could buy it if you were eighteen. Sure. So the theory would be like so, they'd be curious, and they you know they would maybe act out in this in this way. You know, and, and whereas if they have access to porn, maybe that calms people down. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe some of those marginal people are, yeah, are sated by the porn. I mean, again, it's not really hard evidence, um, but there was some s- suggestion that it might uh, be working as a substitute in the economic sense. And, um, you know, and there's other studies that seem to show that, you know, um, there are n- more negative attitudes and things like that, right, for people who watch more porn. Yeah, yeah. I, I, again, I think there are there's evidence you can leverage on both sides mm-hmm. here. So, again, none of which is I'm not trying to come down and have an opinion on this because, to be honest, I don't know. But it just as uh, Danaher points out in the book, like this doesn't bode well for this question of trying to predict what impact sex robots are going to have because if we can't parse this question clearly for pornography, right, which has existed forever. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be hard to to judge ahead of time. Yeah. For sex robots, you know, what the impacts are going to be. Now, I, I want to come back to that question of cathartic versus emboldening, right? Like, as to, like, whether it sates people's appetites or whether it stirs them up. Right. Right? Because there's another binary that you might not think, but is potentially related, right? Okay. Because we still haven't talked about one of people's first objections when they hear this. Oh, right. That everybody will live alone and nobody will get married, right? Right. and Or that they'll withdraw from society. I mean, yeah. literally last night... I was doing some last minute research in a bar and somebody came up to me and asked me what I was reading. Yeah. And so I answered truthfully. I said, I'm reading about the ethics of sex robots. Yes. And literally, and they got very excited. You know, for some reason, this was someone who was very open to this topic. I thought it would scare them away, but that didn't work. It had the opposite effect. So they bothered me for a while. Yeah. Yeah. But they, uh, their first thought was like, oh yeah, I'd never leave my room. Like my friends wouldn't, you know, get me out of the house. And like that's. They just figured they'd fuck all the time. And I immediately asked, well, like, don't you think you get bored? And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess eventually I'd get bored. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, on a bigger scale, I think a lot of people are imagining, 
you know, and I feel like there's been science fiction that's dramatized versions of this, you know, just everybody stays in their house, you know, they don't have relationships. I mean, I think that's one version of it too, is that maybe people just don't develop those skills of relationships. I mean, you know what this sounds like is it sounds like some of the hand wringing people have done about all kinds of technology where they say, um, you know, because of texting or email or internet usage or television, like people are going to forget how to relate to each other. Right. And a few people do like there's your otaku culture in Japan Mm -hmm. or your, you know, various uh, video game type shut-ins we have here, but it's always a very small amount of people. But yeah, so, so this withdrawal, but on the the flip side of that coin, right? Because that's like the bad outcome, which, you know, I'm, I'm kind of mocking it, but it's possible for some people. I I feel like it'll be a small, but, but real thing. Right. Just the same way that other technologies uh, do actually uh, induce a like, small number of people to become like sort of addicted to them to a deleterious degree. Right. And it has to be harming them, right? Which it, it's harming them if they would have been happier had they developed the social skills to go out and have a real relationship. But they're stuck at this local maximum where they have this easier option right. of just having sex with the robot. And so... They sort of live a life they regret because they're stuck at this, like, with this inferior option, right? That's where it's actually bad. Obviously, right. if somebody withdraws of their own volition and doesn't regret it, that's not necessarily a problem, I suppose. Right. Um, but the flip side of this whole coin is is what we hinted at earlier in the benefits is this idea that it could train people or educate them about sex in a safe space um, in a way which might make them more confident to go out and find a real-world partner. Right. right. Yeah. That, so, I mean, that makes a lot of sense just based on, you know, lived experience. I feel like people get more confident as they have more experience. Right. So those are kind of opposites, right? Right. And I want to hold up those opposites next to the other set of opposites, the sort of catharsis versus emboldening, because there's a connection there in a way. Right. I mean, because the question in general here is do sex robots substitute for the real thing or not? Right. In people's minds and in which people? which people's minds. So if it substitutes for the real thing, then that suggests that, you know, the pedophile is going to sort of get their urges out in a safe space, which is good. But it also implies that ordinary people might use this to completely replace, you know, real relationships, which is bad. (laughs) Right. Uh, And if the opposite is true, you get the opposite set. You get the opposite set, which is that if it doesn't replace, it's sort of an inferior option then you might be emboldening the pedophile. They might get more excited and then chase after the real thing, yeah. which is bad. Right, very right? bad, <laughs> yeah. But you also embolden and add confidence and, you know, skill and education to the normal person that uses this, you know, sort of as a stepping stone to going out and having a real relationship, which is good. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, I, either world is potentially ha- fraught. Well, it also seems that both um, binaries are sort of uh, on a spectrum of realism. Mm-hmm. Like it feels like more likely that it will be both emboldening and educational the more realistic it is to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the the other side of it feels like it could happen at an earlier level of realism maybe. Um Oh, I see. So, like, are you saying that one would happen first? Like, maybe. as the technology yeah, maybe gets better, they start off more cathartic and also causing more withdrawal, and then as... no, that wouldn't it be the it would be the other way around, right? You it think? would no, it would start out not as a substitute because it's oh, not right, good right. enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, yeah. So then it's emboldening people to maybe 
to you know, try out real things. It's like a it's like a teacher in good sex or a teacher in how to rape people or whatever. Right. It's right? it's, it's, it's all teaching. kinds of, of teaching. It's like kind of um it's like a video game teaches you how to do real things now, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, in a in a symbolically reduced way based on the technology. Uh, and then, right over time, it you, as you move toward realism, maybe it gets both more cathartic and more uh, encouraging of withdrawal. Right, right, that's right. What I was thinking, yeah. So you know, it's it's hard to figure this stuff out. And and again, um, this is all speculation, and 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 the what actually is going to happen is hard to predict. So what Danaher ends up suggesting in his article is something called the experimental approach. Do you remember reading about this? Right. So. I, I guess this is probably most similar to what we do in the medical space yeah, with new with medicines. Like drugs, particularly. Yeah. Um but and, and there's like a lot of literature and things that, that John cited that I'm not gonna go into. But basically you might apply this experimental approach to new tech that has a large potential impact but a very uncertain effect, which you could argue sex robots fall into that category. Yeah. Um and also technologies are easier to control or change or influence at the beginning when adoption is relatively low and people aren't used to them and they haven't like, you know, sort of ossified into particular social norms. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is maybe you should roll those kinds of technologies out more slowly. You should do various controlled experiments where you have test groups, much like you do with medicines that you sort of surveil with their permission, of course, mm-hmm. to sort of see how the experiments unfolding before you unleash this thing on the world. Right. And then when you do release it, you release it first under some kind of control, like a prescription. And then over time, it becomes something anyone can buy anywhere. Which, you know, I mean, I think you, I don't think it's crazy to say classify a sex robot as a type of medical device. Although uh, medical devices are not regulated as much as um, drugs, which there's a whole uh, recent documentary about. Um, Oh, okay. I forget the name of it, but I think it's on Netflix. Um, and that's actually like a big problem because, uh, they don't look as carefully into the devices as they should. And of course, everybody knows they look perhaps too carefully into their drugs. I mean, if anything, the the regulation is too strong there. So, uh, it's, um, well, and there's obviously a conservative policy response to this that's negative, right? Which is like, cause what this sounds like, this experimental approach is it potentially is going to. Sounds like a lot of government regulation. A lot of red tape that's going to slow things down. Yeah, and if that's poorly done, it really can ruin things. I mean, they're not totally wrong about that. Um, But if it's well done, it can give the correct safety valves so that things roll out slowly, and once they're shown not to have problems, they roll out more quickly, rather than, um, you know, uh, just picking winners and and driving up costs and doing other things that are bad. (laughs) Although, you know, in, in, in some cases, I think even with an experimental approach, there's probably limits to how much you can learn. Like if we had done this with smartphones, right? for example, I'm not sure that like any kind of controlled experimentation would have, you know, predicted the kinds of impacts that we've seen in society. No, nor stopped them. Yeah, because a lot of them are inevitable. And some of them were not at all predictable until everybody had cell phones. Yeah, some of them like only appear at a certain scale. Right. Right. So if you're doing a small test group, you're maybe not going to see some of these like communications dynamics and things that appear when everybody's got a smartphone in their pocket. Right. Or a sex robot in their closet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, we're all going to need bigger closets. Okay. Now, as hard as we've been saying it is to predict this stuff, there is a, a chapter, an essay in this book that does go out on a limb and make some 
interesting predictions, particularly about how this might impact marriage. Right. Um, yeah. And it's kind of from an economics perspective, which I liked. It's about, you know, sex bot induced social change or SBISC. I'm not sure why that needs an acronym, but uh, uh, Marina Adshade, the author, gives it one. Um, and, uh, you know, she gives a couple other examples of like technologically caused social change, which right. is a generally interesting topic to us here. Yeah, it's something I'm particularly interested in. I don't think it's enough discussion. She talks about birth control in particular and its effect on culture. Yeah, so that one I think is uh, interesting and, and something that made sense when I heard it, but not something I thought about much, which is that, you know, birth control, uh, the arrival of birth control led to an increase in pregnancies outside of marriage. Right. But that happens because of sort of a chain of effects, right? right. We should take you through that because that's a little bit counterintuitive. Right. So so what first happens is that people have the, you know, the option all of a sudden to have, you know, premarital sex without risking a pregnancy, right? I mean, that's... Right. They now have that option that because... technology comes in because of the pill and... Exactly. And stuff. Right. Um, but then, like, what's the next step after well, that? Well, the next step that happens is that the social stigma of having sex outside of marriage starts to melt. So people used to be extremely negative towards, say, a woman who had sex outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. And then after uh, birth control came around, they were just somewhat negative toward that woman, right? Right. They, they rolled back their negativity. And, and generally speaking, that social stigma started to melt away and affect fewer people. And then that leads to more premarital sex in general because the social cost has gone way down. Exactly. So and then a new generation of women comes up and these like gener these women are just raised with less social stigma around sex. And so they just have more sex. But, you know, birth control is not 100% effective 100% of the time, especially if you're not always using it correctly or you don't have access to it. or Right. Or you might not even be interested in it. You're just no longer constrained by the social stigma. Exactly. Maybe you never wanted birth control. And under any circumstance, you just weren't that person, but the social stigma that would have constrained you went away. And so what happens is enough people do that, that unwed uh, uh, women's pregnancies go up. Right. Which is, I mean, this, the way this chain of things works is really actually fascinating to me because I, I, I'm sure there's a ton of other issues that this can apply to. And of course, she's going to apply it to sex robots. Yeah, it's a like a model of unintended consequences for technological change, right? I mean, it's really interesting because... The first order thing is totally predictable, but the second order thing is really hard to imagine from the place of the, being the guy who invented the pill or woman. I don't actually know who invented the pill, the scientist who invented the pill. Right, right, right. Right. So so that's birth control leading to an increase in pregnancy outside marriage. The other one, or the next one that she mentions is the one that's more controversial. And we alluded oh, to we this earlier. We talked about earlier, this a little before, yeah. Right, which is that, you know, access to internet porn may have caused a decline in rape. Again... Uh, she even says herself in the article that that's controversial and, and I'm not from what I other things I've read I'm not totally convinced by that but right. it sounds plausible right I mean it might be true in some cases or some places we're not sure if it's true across the board but it it is interesting for the same reason that it seems like it might affect a person on the margin there might be some people who absent access to porn would rape with access to porn won't rape you know Exactly. And if there are a significant enough number of such people, then it makes sense to make porn available, I think. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, I mean, for that reason alone, obviously there are other reasons to make it available too. But that's, that's, um, that's interesting. And then the next one, 
Um, this is a longer one, like in terms of the scope that this occurs over, right? But you have, you know, labor saving. I mean, you have the traditional division of labor, right, in the home. Right, and I, right. You know, where, so maybe so this like... this is about the impact of like washing machines and toasters and things like that, right? Right, exactly. So like uh, under under one division that you had, you know, a while back, again, I mean, it depends what time in history we're talking about. But, right. in, but, but prior to like the early 1900s when electrification came in, for example... Right. It was just much more profitable for most families to have the man work in the market and the woman do production at home. Right. And that's because, you know, jobs involved physical labor that men were well suited for. And so they would be outside the home. And meanwhile, women would take care of like various in-home tasks, which would be very time consuming. Yeah. I Um, mean, there's also an element of like a lot of jobs just being unavailable to women for cultural reasons. But Oh, of course. Uh, but, Absolutely. You know, so like a man and could th- go to an office and make a lot more than a woman could make in that same office because of also true. sexism in the office, for example. Also true. But yes, those things combined to make it, for most people, it made sense to divide labor in that traditional way of like the man leaves the house and works in the market. The woman stays in the house and does the production there, cooking and cleaning and things. Right. But the reason I mentioned physical labor is because that's where the technology has a direct impact, right? Sure. On both cases, right? right. It, it changes the, the work outside of the home Yes. Um, by re- creating a lot of jobs that don't require physical labor, right? right? I mean, more and more jobs are, do not, you know, are uh, available. And also there's social change as well, too, right? There's right. like, you know, changes in, in the amount of sexism in the workplace and the amount of money that women can make, right? So there's those factors that are partially technologically determined that, you know, allow women to work outside the home. Basically make the workplace more inviting to women because now you can work on a computer or something. There's no obvious advantage for a man uh, over a woman to do that job. Meanwhile, there's just less work to do around the house because you have labor-saving technologies at home, like the ones you mentioned a second ago, right. like a washing machine, et cetera. washing machines, they revolutionize homemaking and make it such that um, a person can do it as a part-time job, basically. So what this essay argues is that all of these changes, you know, over time lead to a more flexible definition of what marriage is. Particularly the division of labor inside marriages is now, I mean, socially speaking, we now have zero stigma against, you know, a wide range of uh, divisions of labor in a, in a traditional marriage. Right. I mean, we, we both know people where like the man takes care of the kid and the woman works and nobody thinks twice about something like that anymore. And I think the argument is eventually that even leads to, you know, acceptance of, for for example, same sex marriages, Right. because again, part of the original stigma against that among, I mean, there are many reasons for the stigma against same sex marriage, like depending on religious values or whatever. Right. But one of those reasons might've been, you know, people have really bought into this traditional division of labor. And once that division of labor sort of becomes obsolete or no longer believed in or necessary. Right. Um, that's one less reason to support a more traditional marriage structure. Yeah, that's super interesting to think about. Like, I just assume that people in the past were against same-sex marriage for religious reasons. But I guess you could imagine in, like, the 1800s, uh, somebody might just think it was tremendously unfair if two men who could both have good jobs... Well, that's funny. ...lived in a house together and had no kids to pay for, right? Which would have been their situation in life at that time with no... no. Uh, you know, uh, technology to give them children. So, um, <laughs> you might've just had a, had a, like an extreme feeling of unfairness about it. I, I don't think that's actually what happened. That's revisionist history maybe, but it, it makes me laugh. Right. But I, and I think with a lot of these things, like the, the sort of cultural and the technological are like in this sort of complicated dialogue. Sure. Right. So it's, and, and as well as like the religious aspects versus like maybe what amount to more, you know, logical choices right? Uh, about, you know, what, 
kinds of people are good at what kinds of things. But it, you know, it over time we've seen this change where you know the definition of marriage has gotten more flexible, and you can argue that technology is plausibly a big part of that. So those are again just prior examples. When we apply this to sex robots, uh, there are some predictions that she makes, right? One of which is the exact opposite of something that a lot of people worry about that we mentioned earlier, which is that maybe marriage rates will go down. That's something a lot of people think, right? I mean, if, hey, if you can just have sex with your robot all day, uh, the argument goes, you know, why bother getting married? But um, the prediction that uh, Marina makes in this essay is the exact opposite, right? She claims that it will actually lead to more and higher quality marriages that last longer. Um, And I think the reason behind that is that, you know, marriage is not just sexual access, right? I mean, that's like one component of a marriage, right? Right. There's a lot of other components. Companionship is one. Uh, What she calls household production is one, which is basically just like, you know, you share resources with a person and it's a lot about raising children. It also it? includes raising children in right, that, right? Right. right. Um, it's a it's a good way to create a stable environment for children. So, like, that's at least three different things you get out of marriage. Only one of which can be met by a sex robot, right? Right. At least the way we're defining them. Yeah, we're we're assuming these sex robots don't do any of these other things. Right. Right. Yeah. So, rather than assuming that people just won't get married anymore because they can have sex with a robot. We might think, oh, that's just one less limiting factor on their decision making, right? Now you no longer have to marry someone like, and factor sex very highly in that consideration if you can meet your needs with a sex robot, right? Um, I mean, you could even imagine, you know, pretty like completely alternate marriage scenarios that, from what we're used to. Right, like totally platonic marriages where everyone has a sexual uh, robot or two in the closet and... You just do all the other things that you do in a marriage. Right. Like two straight women, for example, that just think they'd be like really good parents oh, right. together. This is in the, in the article. That was just an interesting idea, right? Yeah. So like, you know, they just think they're good friends. They think they're going to live well together. They're going to get the companionship aspect. They're going to be great at raising kids. But, you know, they're not having sex with each other. They're having sex with the robots. And that, that household works for them. Right. Right. So it starts making things like that possible. And because you're not limited, like you're not picking a partner trying to triangulate between these multiple things, you can kind of take sex out of the equation. You can now maybe make better choices about the other two factors, about the companionship and the household production. Right, right. I mean, these, yeah, there are all these dimensions. And I mean, obviously, Jane Austen and a million people know this, right? But there's all these dimensions on which you're trying to judge and choose a partner. And um, in a way, uh, sexual attractiveness is the one that's the most random the most determined by like your genes and not your mind, your mm-hmm. rational mind. And, uh, and the one that is most often in, uh, incongruous with the others. So it, it seems like you could, by pulling that one out of the equation, um, you know, if this becomes a stigmaless thing to do and people are cool doing it, um, and it doesn't lead like the potential spouse to feel cheated or something, um, which I think is all possible. Uh, then yeah, you could see us being a net, major positive for people where they could just you know pick better partners they pick better partners yeah marry the person they should marry and you know not worry about what the person looks like and if it's the most sexy thing to them right um because they're not signing themselves up for a life of uh of only having sex with that person uh they'll also have the option of robots right now a caveat to all of this is of course that all these predictions are assuming widespread adoption. Right. Right. So if you don't have like if this kind of if we never get past the nine percent, you know, 
poll answer that we saw earlier. Although that is almost 10%. I mean, maybe 10% would be enough to to start a, start a trend in this direction. But I, but I don't know. But yeah, so that's the prediction is better marriages, which is a little counterintuitive, but I think uh, very plausible and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, another prediction that she makes is that it will lead to normalization of non-exclusive relationships. Now, I think this is pretty much a continuation of a trend that's already happening uh, for various reasons, right? And this is one of those things kind of like the discussion of birth control that, you know, she imagines happening in stages, right? So like sort of stage one is sort of the the pioneers, right? The people that do sort of what we were just talking about, right? They have like a productive marriage, a productive household where some people are teamed up, but it's completely non-sexual between them, right? right? Both of them are just meeting their needs from robots only. Right. Right. So a few people do that enough that everybody starts to get used to that as a concept right right um and that again starts to normalize like an alternative marriage concept that doesn't in like isn't founded on like this monogamous sexual relationship right right and of course there's already many people who uh practice non-monogamy in their lives in various ways Uh, but there's a lot of social pressure now for them to you know not do that or not be open about it Right, and I think this is a lot of, yeah, this is just one more thing pushing. So if this were, I'm just saying, so if that social cost were to lower, you okay, yeah, expect yeah. a similar situation to it, the birth control, where the social cost of being promiscuous was lower. I see, yeah. But there were already women being born every year who, like, given their own free choice, would be promiscuous. So all they needed was that social opportunity, and then they would do it, right? Right. And I feel like it's the same thing. We have people who are who already have would make that choice, but for whatever reason aren't. And um, now they can maybe point to someone up the street that's making that choice, at right. least with in the context of robots, which is can robots are kind of the stepping stone here because, again, less people <laughs> think the, drug. less people think robots are cheating. Right. right? right. I mean, that's how we exactly they're the gateway drug here. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that that's step two is that people start having, you know, marriages where, you know, they bring in the sex robots um, and. They're also maybe there's other forms of non-monogamy because they they've sort of like they've gotten used to this idea that you know two partners in a marriage don't necessarily need to be having sex with each other. Right. So at a certain point, if you're having sex with robots outside the marriage, it's a small leap to say let's just have sex with other people outside the marriage. Right. Especially if the people are not having sex with each other at all. Exactly. Um, then there's just a high expectation. It's sort of a non-issue. Yeah. And then if they are having sex with each other at all, then I think it maybe. There might still be social stigma because there's maybe lingering safety issues there, but, um, you know, they also might go away and there's lots of ways to get around those things too. I mean, we didn't discuss any of this, but, um, one thing that can be done if you have, uh, humanoid robots with AI is you could also probably have human beings piloting those robots remotely via some kind of VR or something. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Well, this is uh, so, teledildonics. I mean, then it just becomes a really advanced teledildonic, but surely having sex with a robot that your partner is driving is not cheating, <laughs> right? I mean, she's driving. She's You're having sex with her. You're just doing sure. it through the robot. And, you know, if it's a good enough thing, then she feels what you're doing and you feel what she's doing. And, you know, how is that not sex at that point? Um, so... Uh, you know, I mean, again, that also feels like a thing that erodes to me the lines here. Um, to the sure. Point we might uh, sort of not care so much about the body and care more about the mind. Right, right. And, yeah. and, and 
generally speaking, we're not talking too much about teledildonic today, but it is just like another That's technology. Another topic for another yeah, day. Yeah. Uh, but we promise to talk a lot more about it in the future. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I bring it up whenever I can. Well, it's just a fun word to say, that's right? Teledildonics. Yeah, that's exactly why. Okay. Um, so, uh, and then stage three um, is when this starts to just filter down to quote unquote regular marriages, right? Again, with the social norms are shifting now to where there's a lot of these non-standard marriages that are basically not based on sex at all right. to the point that even people that are in, you know, normal marriages, I shouldn't say normal, traditional, traditional marriages, right? Where they're having sex with each other, right. um, that they start to recognize that monogamy as more of a personal choice, right? Right. As something that you can choose to do or not choose to do, and it's not so much like a, a choice that society makes for you. Right, right. And I suspect a certain contingent of people will always make that choice um, because I think, you know, first, culture changes slowly, and second, I think there is some... It's a stable choice in some ways for yeah, some people. Yeah, it's a good, like, solid choice for certain people in certain situations. Jealousy is real. Jealousy is a real thing and uh, stability is a real value. And you know, there are some, there are some things that uh, there's some people and some circumstances where it makes lots of sense. So I expect it to continue on to be a significant portion of marriages. But, uh, but I, I see it only being a good thing if it's seen as being more of a personal choice and more of an affirmative uh, decision you make, uh, like being vegan or like, you know, um, wearing your seatbelt or something sure. that you choose. To, uh, I guess wearing your seatbelt is a bad example since that's regulated by law. But, you know, it's sort of a more affirmative choice that you make. Um, I think that makes it stronger, and I think that makes it um, more, you know, uh, of a real thing for the people who do choose to do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, that is a very hopeful uh, outcome, in my opinion. I think I hope that, that she's right about the way that that works. There, and the, but now there's one more prediction that I do want to talk about that's more of a negative one. Yeah, let's talk about that. Which is that she predicts that this is going to, on balance, disadvantage lower socioeconomic groups. Oh, yeah, which makes sense because this is, of course, an introduction of a expensive, probably, technology that's going to provide, you know, some good. <laughs> well, I think that's a big part of it, right? It's just the expensive technology in general, including the sex robots themselves. Right. Um, but... Um, Another issue is sort of assortative mating, right? Which is something that oh, yeah. people are already sort of calling attention to in the context of online dating and right. online matching. Right. Right. Which is that it tends to, e even today, pair up people of similar socioeconomic groups. Yeah. More commonly than before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So you have maybe, I mean, one form of social mobility in the past was you know, dating Marry and marriage. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, because you're limited by maybe if you in a pre online dating world, right. Or, or in, you're in a small town or whatever it is, right. You're much more limited in your choices. Yeah. So and even certain... in a city, you mix more with the different race, uh, the different uh, ethnicities. And uh, I mean, not ethnicities, I mean, uh, well, that's a factor groups. too somewhat is that I think with this, this matching also probably tends to pair people similar races together yeah but, i think it does I but was, the issue yeah. yeah i was more trying to refer to uh yeah the, the socioeconomic group right 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 yeah that too so that's something we kind of like arguably already see is that rich people are marrying other rich people right and in a way poor people are losing out on the opportunity to as you said marry up yes right and this i think gets further in the way of that um again it's allowing people to not have to choose because of sex appeal right as we discussed earlier right Right. So which in a way takes away 
one of the great equalizers for poor people, right? Because like, yeah. you know, beautiful is a roll of the dice and like a lot of uh, poor people could marry up because they were born attractive. Um, that's just going to, this is going to make that harder for them. And, and we've talked in the past about how better plastic surgery and better uh, genetic engineering might also make that harder for them and reduce, you know, turn beauty into a product uh, more so than it is now. Um, yeah. So, actually, so this is like another factor that's stacking in favor of like Cinderella stories being increasingly um, uh, non-relatable. This kills the fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't have the, the poor princess that meets the wealthy prince. The or fairy whatever. godmother is going to have to buy so much enhancement technology. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it's... <laughs> So, so that, I mean, that is one of the things that, I mean, the other thing that is mentioned here is just that, um, uh, you know, generally speaking, if, if, I don't know if I buy this one as much, right. But the, the other point that she makes is that as monogamy fades away, right. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily fade away, but it, like non-monogamous relationships become less of a stigma, right. Right. That, that is going to tend to harm people of lower socioeconomic status more because those people tend to have more inconsistent access to things like birth control and abortion, basically to older technologies that help, you know, make non-monogamy a possible thing and not a terrible idea. Yeah. We'll see though. Cause technology may, may pull the tail up on that. That's kind of my thinking is that like, I mean, it de- now there's always policy, right? You right. can always have a conservative takeover of your government right, that leads right. to these things being well, so banned. Well, kind of like backwards religious policy, right? like screws people, then that's the policy screwing people. But I, I think technology will make it cheaper to access um, some of these older technologies. Birth control and abortion. It's hard to imagine those getting harder to get. Uh, then, then. Well, <laughs> don't say that. Well, again, again, there are <laughs> for policy reasons. There are scenarios, right? But like you I mean, know, all things being equal. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> well, we won't go there. Yeah, because that's a that's a. Well, there's oh. like an ongoing sort of like Supreme Court issue here that might uh, affect that. And, yeah, this is related. So we'll so, well maybe we'll we'll, we'll refrain we'll, from making <laughs> immediate terms. We won't predictions. Pre- make predictions on that for now. Oh, How about God. that's fine. Um, okay, so let's get more speculative here. Yeah. Let's talk about harm to the robots themselves. Let's imagine these robots are conscious right, now. We talked about harms to the users. There basically aren't that many. We and talked, harms to society. We talked which, about harms to society, right. Which, you know, there might be, but it's hard to tell. But basically. we talked more about benefits because honestly, to me, this mostly seems like uh, it's going to be a positive development. But again, the jury's out on that. But well, now we're... everybody retreats to their rooms and we have no more babies. That's a bad thing. I don't think that's going to happen, but we won't know until we start to do it a little bit. Sure. Right? So, okay, there might be harms to society. It might promote bad attitudes or something, but it might not. We don't know. But what about the robots themselves? Now this, we have to talk about the second type of robot, right? Because if it's the first type of robot, you essentially can't harm it. Right, right. We don't a robot that's not a person. We don't care if it gets doesn't damaged. Matter. It doesn't feel anything. It, right. Any any feelings it appears to have are just programming for your entertainment. If it doesn't affect you or society badly, it can't affect anything badly. Right. But if the robot is conscious, right, and has been designed for sex, basically, is that okay? Yeah. What is going on there? Is are we harming that robot when we have sex with it? Right. And and this gets into really interesting questions. They kind of just have to do with designing conscious beings in general right um in fact this is going to overlap a lot with genetic engineering uh, because basically what 
Although, let's stick with robots for a second before we go there. Right. Because the thing about a robot is it's so utterly different from a human being and its architecture, right? Human beings have a certain reward system. Certain things are pleasurable to them. Certain things are painful to them. But when we're talking about a robot, and a sex robot in particular, uh, the, all those choices are made by the designer. Right. Right? So presumably a sex robot, you want to reward sexual behavior, right? When it's pleasing people. So you might program it to find you know, pleasing a human in bed, just like the most thrilling, pleasurable thing that this robot can experience. Exactly. Right. So you program it that way. You might um, possibly even give it uh, painful responses to doing things it's not supposed to do, like harming a human, for right. example. Right. You've got your carrot and you've got your stick. Right. Right. So now you imagine that being being born, is that conscious being living like a good life is it living a free life is this acceptable to do this are we creating a race of slaves i mean there's a dozen ethical issues here. well and is it even okay to create a race of slaves if they're not if they're machines right i mean obviously you cannot raise humans to be slaves for obvious ethical reasons yeah but but those are humans those are those are built like we are built they have the same constraints we do you could build a robot that was a true sort of happy slave in theory mm-hmm uh, where it actually got its highest pleasure um, from uh, serving its uh, its owner uh, the way it wanted to be served. So that's questionable then whether that is is, is ethically wrong. Sure, yeah, and, and there's a few different issues, right? One is that, of course, you could just design it in a way that's inhumane, right? I mean, if you give it um, a reward system that's, bad that leads to it having a bad life where it's like very hard for it to experience happiness right or you know right like they bring up in the book uh if you uh were to program it to like almost like a nymphomaniac to feel pain like whenever it hasn't had sex recently oh yeah right you're basically like turning into like yeah that's basically i think on an ethical level the same as um forcing somebody into prostitution or something like yeah you're you're dooming it to an unhappy life right whereas if you just give it a preference for sex with humans and a preference for maybe people pleasing or whatever like with humans and then you let it make its own choices and it chooses to have sex with humans and make them happy then i fail to see the ethical problem there Sure. Well, okay. So, but is that, so we imagine that we've designed it ethically and we imagine that we give it choice, but is it a real choice? Is it a real choice if the designers have so stacked the deck that, you know, we already know what it's going to want, basically? Well, it's like you have to test it. So you have to know what it's going to want, right? So I feel like that's not a good enough parameter for me, but, um, I mean, our deck is already stacked, right? I mean, human beings were designed by an evolutionary process, right? And our st- our stack is our deck is stacked. Our stack is decked. Our our deck is stacked by in favor of of fatty food and in favor of outrageous comments on the internet and in favor of um, sex and in favor of uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that were good for us in the wild that we crave irrationally in the present. Um, I think that's right. I think that's right. Due to our own, and and we still have free choice. We have this will, and we can not pick up the donut. We can, or we don't have free choice. The white, but the point is that, like, well, maybe it's an illusion, but we feel like we have it, right? I feel like I have. The point is, these robots would be no worse off than we are necessarily. They would be no worse off. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, they would have the same sort of core free will questions that we have, right? Which is that they have, you know, built-in preferences. 
that they either follow or they don't. And so it's sort of worrying about whether that counts as a real choice. Um, yeah, it's philosophically interesting, but it's not any different from just being a, a human. Yeah, so if we think human yeah. life is worthwhile, then arguably these robots' lives would also be worthwhile for the same reason. Right, right, right. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of the issue of are they are they free? Um, now, I, I think you could argue that they're not free if they are literally treated like property, right? I mean, we can argue that uh, a good law would be that they are not owned specifically, right? Right. Um, maybe That's they're, interesting they're, because I feel like they will be owned. But yeah, I mean, it may be that it may be that these things once they exist, and of course, there are many stories about this. Uh, Mersek has a short story about this, mm-hmm. the wedding album, uh, and there are others that are like you know about the idea that at some point the owned robots kind of either rebel or get together and protest or somehow demand that they be treated like persons and, and be released from ownership. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I don't know whether that's like an emergent property of a sufficiently complex consciousness or whether that's something you can program into a robot to want or not want. But uh I I am open to the idea that it may be a, once you get to a certain amount smart, you just are going to not want to be owned and that that's going to be a, an ethical kind of hard line that we have to respect. Right. And, and, and my gut just kind of rejects that idea that if it is conscious, it, I feel like it shouldn't, you know, it shouldn't be, owned. I, I feel like it's okay creating it mm-hmm. um, as long as your, your design is humane. But yeah, I feel like it should be, it's creation should be, you know, subsidized in some manner or it should be able to, you know, become maybe free after a certain amount of time after it's created. Or I, I feel like literally treating them like slaves in the sense of being owned to me crosses a kind of line um, mm. that, that I wouldn't be okay with. Mm. Um, but it, these are complicated issues. Uh, the, the author of the the article in the, in the book that deals with this, Steve uh, Peterson, ultimately comes to the conclusion, he kind of like reasons his way out of this being an ethical problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... I'm not going to continue to get into all of the philosophical weeds here. Okay. But his ultimate conclusion, at least, um, is that it is okay to create these sex robots. Um, Phew. But uh, his gut still has a problem with it, right? It's kind of what he uh-huh. says. Yeah. Right? So yeah. He's, he's sort of like, he's like, con- like the reasoning has guided him to a place where he's a little uncomfortable with, right? Right. So I don't know. I mean, I, I haven't fully decided yet. Um Again, we're a long way from having to deal with conscious beings in this level, and uh, of this level that we can create. So right, um, but it's uh, it's a good question, and it's really not a sex robot question either, right? I no, mean, it's really just an artificial consciousness question, right? Because if you have a housekeeping robot yeah. that's just or an accountant that loves robot. washing dishes and feels like a shot of pleasure, and it's like robot brain every second, it like cleans a cup. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's not it's the same ethical concerns, really. I mean, but that's really. I, if that's what it is, right? I mean, to me, that is not different ethically from having livestock, right? Which are like bred to enjoy their, you know, existence before they turn into food for you or any other ways that we sort of use living things in our, in our societal life. Well, here's the difference though, right? Because, uh, and, and this is mentioned in the article too, is right. It's like, what is their cognitive potential, right? Now, if you make them kind of, of the intelligence level of domesticated animals, mm-hmm. then, you know, however you feel it's ethical to treat animals, arguably you could treat them the same. Now that itself, how we treat animals is already a complicated issue. Right, right. But right. like you could, but, you know, arguably a good sex partner robot 
might demand certain intellectual skills, right? I mean, I, I don't know <laughs> I don't if you know can. How you're doing it, but yeah, no, I think no, but right. I, yeah, I but, think you're right. <laughs> but I mean, how good of a sex robot partner can you make right. without making it pretty intelligent? It's going to be pretty creepy until it's pretty intelligent. I think that's right. And so, you know, that now you have this issue of two of like, okay, it's got a pretty powerful brain. Is it living a fulfilling life? If even if even if it's happy, just sleeping with humans all the time and like jumping from job to job, right? Or maybe it has like one human or however it works. Even if it's just happy, living its life trying to please humans sexually, is that like still somehow wrong? If it's got this powerful brain that it's not really fully taking advantage of. I mean, these are other questions that get asked. Um, I don't have an answer to that. But right, right. I don't know the answer to that either. That's com- complicated. Or like, does it, you know, do, do you need to program it like with some, you know, ability to appreciate other things? Like, should it have, you know, time off work, right? Yeah, <laughs> you I know? saw that in the thing and that was not convincing to me. I don't understand if it's okay for it to do it. It sh- should be okay for it to do it as much as it wants. I mean, I saw where Danaher got that off of, I think it was Danaher's, article off of uh john stuart mill right uh no no th- this is a uh, steve i think steve peterson's oh, article it was peterson's article yeah, so, yeah yeah so and peterson got that from john john stuart mill that quote that's like about how life is not worth living if it doesn't have you know additional- well the thought experiment is like would you choose to be a happy animal right? right like if you could turn from a human into a pig but it was like the most happy fulfilled pig that ever existed that had right. like tons of mud to roll in or whatever it is that pigs like yeah right would you make that choice and the argument is most people probably wouldn't make that choice and that that indicates something about what a good life is to a human but that's to a human right yeah that's so contingent i mean i only wouldn't make that choice because i'm currently totally enmeshed in the in the life that i have and to be clear i don't think the the author of this article buys those arguments either right right? no i i i thought that was an interesting thing but i don't yeah i don't totally buy that you can't just design them to be like because there's so many axes of intelligence like sort of intelligent enough on the axes that matter and less intelligent than the ones that don't such that it doesn't feel that it's life of of uh of sexual activity is anything other than like a gift you know right i mean to me the proof is in the pudding if the thing itself says well, I'm happy and my life is a gift, then I'm inclined to believe it. Sure. Well, and in general with these arguments, I find that I personally tend to be pretty sympathetic to a pretty, you know, sort of uh, like purely, you know, hedonic look at these things. Like if something's happy, I'm kind of generally okay with it. Mm -hmm. And these like vaguer notions of the good life... um, you know, aren't very compelling to me personally. I know a lot of philosophers take them seriously. Yeah. But well, I kind of feel like if it's minute by minute, you know, subjective experience is positive. I don't know. That passes the like lowest ethical yeah. bar for me. It may not pass the highest ethical bar, but I feel like that's the minimum that you need to be right. passing. And, and along those lines, you know, I'm more sympathetic to, you know, various kinds of like wireheading for humans, sure. you know, like, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to you know just a regular human wanted to hook their brain up to a pleasure device right and otherwise tune out from society and that was like a choice they wanted to make like i don't know if i would fault them for that right uh uh, absent like a pending social collapse from everybody making that choice i'm basically supportive of 
of people being allowed to make that choice. Yeah, I mean, you know, we need to keep growing the food and 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 making society run. Right, so, right. Like right. There, there's, there's those some, issues. There's some point at which it becomes a problem, but that's a, you know, a fairly high bar for me. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. again, I, you know, not everybody feels the same way, so that's that's obviously like up for debate. Right. Um. Anyways, that's probably the most speculative thing. I before we wrap, I just want to talk about something else. Okay. Um. Which is, I want to think about something a little more grounded, right? Um, and just like maybe what the experience of owning one of these things would be. Okay. Right? Like, let's say it's a little more socially acceptable, right? I mean, already what? We have 9% yeah. roughly, right? Let's say that gets up to 30, 40, 50%. And these things are, are pretty good, right? Now, the question is when they're in your house, right? Are they single use? Like, are they just made for sex? Or is this like a general household robot that you can also have sex with, right? Right. And so I as can we're kind of see us going both ways, yeah. Yeah, there's like an offhanded comment in the intro to this book that suggested that Danaher thought, you know, it was going to be more of a general purpose home robot that you could have sex with. I'm a little more skeptical of that. Um, I tend to think that, you know, most robots we're not going to build to be humanoid. Right. It will be so needlessly expensive to make realistic humanoid robots for most tasks. So we'll probably already have household robots long before we have realistic sex bots. But let's imagine a single-use robot. And I, I'm just curious, like, because one of the things that occurred to me as I was thinking about this is, like, if it's running today's AI, it's got a learning algorithm in it, right? So it's kind of learning from you. You're training it, right? So there's this reciprocal relationship you're developing. And we already know that people can, you know, personify objects pretty easily. Right now, some people more easily than others, obviously, like the robosexuals out there, like that's an easy leap for them to make. For some of us, you know, it's it's a bit of a bigger divide to cross. Right. But when you have something like that's in your house that you spend a lot of time with, that's learning sort of from this process. And the other thing I, I, I can see otherwise ordinary people developing pretty strong attachments and it not changing their lives necessarily dramatically, like them still having going out in the world and doing things and having partners and stuff, and it just being another appliance in the house. Yeah, it's like your car or something. You spend a lot of time in it. You start to like love it. Maybe you give it a name, but like it doesn't mean you don't have a wife or a right. husband or something like that. But the other like dimension of it that I just sort of wanted to think about and leave off on is this idea of like how much you're customizing and it creating your partner yeah right because and and maybe in an ongoing way and just to me that that's like such a especially like if you imagine that you get to the point that you have actually feelings of love for this thing and again i'm not assuming it's conscious like i'm imagining just like very good convincing illusions right yeah yeah um and i don't know there's just something very strange about that And, and for all the sex robots we've seen in uh movies and things and stories I don't know if I've quite seen that dynamic where you have, again, the combination of the sort of, you know, machine learning that's like adapting to you, but also you're specifically customizing it as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe even creating multiple personalities for it. Sure. Right. Sure. Because there'd just be software. Right. I mean, you you can also load up new software for it. Right. So you could probably obtain pre-made personalities but i imagine easily. you might have like and then customize those or even like have some sort of customization matrix that you overlay on those and that automatically customize them to you sure you know i mean you could i i could imagine this getting quite complex and being the kind of thing people are very nerdy about you know and 
uh, really like tweaking. Well, but I imagine you'd settle on a couple profiles that you would stick with. And, you know, you might even like swap for different activities, right? Or like you might set it to like non-record mode for certain things. Sure. Um, I don't know. I, I just, as I was thinking about how that would actually play out, it just sounded extra creepy and, and weird to me. Well, especially <laughs> so, when you start to consider that like there's some company on the other side that owns all of the sexual data about you. Right. If it's a cloud AI. And then uh, I'm just assuming it's a cloud based system because, you know, there's so much processing available there. Um, and <laughs> if that's the case, I mean, this is sort of absurd. It wouldn't, I don't think it would be this way, but it made me think of, well, what if there's an ad supported model and part of its thing, like everything ad supported was to like keep you engaged. <laughs> so it was like endlessly seductive in order to slip subliminal advertisements into your sexual activity. <laughs> oh, like a seduction bot is definitely a, a, a interesting thing, right? right. If, it, if it doesn't like acknowledge the willingness of the subject it's going after. Right. I mean, not just even in the home, which is, particularly pernicious right but like even just one that you set loose on like a political target or whatever right yeah. right right or one that is uh you know employed basically like a hooker you know like right a, like a um a robotic prostitute um so yeah obviously seduction bots will be a thing but yeah i mean if if it's um if the th the corporation or entity controlling your s sort of sexual experience based on all of this uh, you know knowledge it has of your preferences is not a hundred percent on your side um they're gonna have access to you at a very vulnerable state <laughs> sure <laughs> i mean i don't know it's it, it's a little black mirror it's not quite realistic but this idea of like it whispering ads in your ear right after coitus is like really <laughs> making me laugh like yeah yeah not know, not plausible but funny it's like a free robot hooker you know and you're like oh it's free but then it like time yeah. for pillow talk about your favorite brand of toothpaste exactly or whatever. yeah i mean it knows exactly what you're liable to buy if it whispers to you about it on the bed and like that's what it does you know that's hilarious i think you'd be so much cooler if you drove one of these cars or something you know yeah, yeah. i guess you don't drive cars in this future so if you subscribe to one of these car services exactly yeah i mean yeah that's that makes me laugh that's totally absurd but it's funny to me <laughs> the other thing is that if we have just general ais out there that are getting better and better mm -hmm. is people are going to repurpose them for sex whether they're intended for that or not or they may attempt right to. well then that's sort of the plot of her right right but and 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 again her is a pretty out there version yeah like in far out there in terms of the technology is very advanced in her yeah but I'm thinking of something that's maybe not quite so advanced. Yeah. But there's just like a general cloud AI that's learning from its interactions with you. Like just, just an assistant software that could be sort of corrupted. Yeah, basically. I think people are already trying to do this with like Siri and the like. Uh, I haven't gone looking for any of it online, but I suspect if you went looking, you could find some hacked together, you know, stuff where they try to make Siri say sexual things and stuff like that. Right. And those things have so many canned responses that the programmers just basically make them you know not in, engage with that kind of stuff right once they realize what you're up to but you can kind of trick it i think if you are very smart <laughs> right right and and a more adaptive like truly uh strong ai uh could you know maybe like be led in different directions i mean there wouldn't be as many guardrails potentially right right um
Anyways, shall we uh, leave off there? Because I think that's pretty Yeah, I think we, are, uh, we have gone into the deep end as we like to do. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, our comic book Let Go is now available. You can buy it. You can tell your friends. Letgocomic.com. And if you have a minute and you want to do something for us, uh, something that would be really nice is if you went on Amazon and left a review on the comic. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that would be, be fantastic. We would be very much in your debt, especially if you already got the Kickstarter book or you just don't have the spare money lying around. You know, that's the kind of thing that would, would help us out. Yeah, it would help us a lot. When when you guys put reviews on iTunes um, when we first started this podcast, it really helped us uh, get some audience. And, and now we have a blank page with no reviews on it. If you want to put some reviews on there, we'd appreciate it. All right, I'm Ted Cupboard. I'm John Perry. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening.